Okay, Daniel 7 and 8. Some of you are thinking, yeah, it's easy to preach on the stories in the first six chapters, but what is he going to do when he gets to chapter 7? So we're here, and uh, I'd like us to... uh, I'd like to remind you of a couple of things to keep in mind before we get into the text itself. Uh, This is, there are two dangers to be avoided when we uh, come to these passages. One danger is is just to ignore this altogether. You know, some Christians read it and it's very confusing. It's as confusing as Iowa caucuses and so we just move. (laughs) This is my last Iowa joke, I promise. We just kind of move past it, and, and we just don't give it a lot of thought because it's, it's so confusing. It's so different from other parts of Scripture we're familiar with. Uh, that's one danger. We shouldn't ignore it. On the other hand, we also shouldn't get too absorbed in the details of these visions. Uh, either way, I think even if we ignore it or get too absorbed, we might miss what this text is actually teaching us. And I think there are some really encouraging valuable, meaningful, profound truths that these visions, both in Daniel and other books of the Bible, uh, give us. So I really want us to be careful with that, and and I want us to learn what God has for us from this passage. As we approach these two chapters today, let's remember that this is not a whole different book. This is all part of the same book of Daniel, so we're working through the same themes, the same subjects, the same ideas— Uh, The book, the whole book is about God's people living in the world. It teaches us how to live in light of the coming of the kingdom of God. So the second half is just as the first half. It's the same idea, the same theme. And you will see the same truth being taught through stories and through visions. And lastly, uh, I want to remind us that this is apocalyptic literature. This is a different genre. It's the same book, but, but there's a switch, there's a transition to a different kind of writing. We're dealing with apocalyptic literature. It's read and interpreted differently from the stories, the narrative parts of the Bible. Apocalyptic literature pulls back the curtain to reveal the ongoing conflict between God and the world in rebellion against Him, and to assure us of God's ultimate victory. This is why these books, these chapters are written, to show us what's really going on behind the scenes, that there's a great conflict between God and those in rebellion against Him, and to assure us that God is on the throne and that He will win the war. Keep that in mind as you read Daniel, Revelation, and other books like that. The apocalyptic literature communicates through vivid imagery. This is why we have to be careful not to get too absorbed in the details. These are vivid pictures. They're meant to shock us. They're meant to capture our imagination. They're meant to make us think about something. And so we need to remember as we read these to not overinterpret it. We must understand this genre in order to understand the meaning of these chapters. Okay, now we're going to get into the text. We'll see uh, that the world is exposed in these visions, that the Lord is enthroned, and the church is encouraged. Those are three points of my outline. We'll see the world exposed, the Lord enthroned, and the church encouraged. Okay, first vision in chapter 7. Daniel sees these four beasts 
coming out of the sea. The sea is an apocalyptic image of chaos and evil. So these are not good beasts that are coming out. The four corners of the world, the four directions of the world, there's this beastly rebellion that is happening. These ravenous wild animals are scary. They're supposed to be scary. Daniel is upset for a reason. This, is a, this feels like a nightmare. It bothers him. You know, he's, he's alarmed and appalled by these visions. These animals have horns and iron teeth. They destroy and devour. They do remind Daniel of some animals he knows, like lions and bears and leopards, but they are different. You know, lions have wings and there's these horns coming out. This is, this is not corresponding exactly to the reality of the animal kingdom as Daniel is, is familiar with. These are nightmarish monsters, especially the fourth beast that Daniel can't even find a parallel. He can't find anything to tell us this looks like that. He's like, it doesn't look like anything else that I've seen. And he grows a little horn, which has eyes and a boastful mouth. Okay, these are not regular animals. I want to make, make sure we understand these are monsters. These are nightmarish monsters. And we have to ask, our first big question is, why does God give Daniel such a disturbing frightening vision. Why monsters? I think God wants to remind Daniel, and I think he wants to remind us this morning, what human sin really is. Perhaps on a pleasant fall afternoon in Babylon, Daniel looked around the city with its great architecture and political organization, securely protected by well-trained military force. And maybe he thought, you know, this is, this is not so bad. This is okay. I'm kind of starting to feel at home here. And so God sends him a vision of monsters to remind him that sin is ugly, sin is dirty, sin is violent, sin is evil. This vision, much like many, if not most of the other visions in apocalyptic literature, it exposes the monstrosity of sin. The vision shows that the one universal trait of any human culture built without God is lust for power and ruthless suppression of those who stand in the way. This is why this vision is so disturbing. Because it reveals to us and it reveals to Daniel what human empires really are like. We can start feeling comfortable with them. And that's why God needs to send us visions to remind us of what human sin is really like. One writer, James K. Smith, puts it this way, Apocalyptic literature, the sort you find on the strange pages of Daniel and the book of Revelation, is a genre of scripture that tries to get us to see or see through the empires that constitute our environment. 
in order to see them for what they really are. Unfortunately, we associate apocalyptic literature with end times literature, as if its goal were a matter of prediction. But this is a misunderstanding of the biblical genre. The point of apocalyptic literature is not prediction, but unmasking, unveiling the realities around us for what they really are. While the Roman Empire pretends to be a gift to civilization and the zenith of human accomplishment, John's apocalyptic perspective from a heavenly angle shows us the reality. Rome is a monster. Now, I'm going to nuance it a little bit. I think Smith undervalues the predictive nature of apocalyptic literature. I think apocalyptic literature also predicts. But I think he's right on about the unmasking function of books like Daniel and Revelation. Notice how the angel does not offer a specific interpretation to Daniel in verses 17 through 27 in chapter 7. Remember, Daniel sees this vision, the monsters, the throne of God. He wants it to be interpreted. He goes to the angel, and the angel does not give him any details. Have you noticed that in chapter 7? Chapter 8 is going to be different. But in chapter 7, the angel stays general intentionally. And so should we. Chapter 7 is a general prophecy. It's not specific. If it was specific, the angel would have interpreted it for us, as he does in chapter 8. But in chapter 7, it's kept general on purpose. The angel does not correlate each beast with a particular empire. He does not identify the little horn with a particular oppressor of God's people. Why? Because this vision is not about what will happen, at least not as much about what will happen, as it is about what always happens. It exposes the world for what it is, a ravenous beast pointing its horn against God himself. There are always kings and kingdoms who come out of the sea of human evil to establish their power by violence and oppression. There are always little horns who turn their hatred towards God's people. Friends, this vision teaches us, chapter 7 teaches us that we walk among beasts in the world. There are beasts within and beasts without. And we must not forget it. And maybe as you sit at church this morning, you too need a vision of monsters because you have forgotten how destructive sin really is. Pay attention to what this passage of Scripture teaches. Sin is a ferocious, insatiable monster. Consider the possibility that you have become too comfortable with your sin. Consider the possibility that you have gotten too attached to a worldly kingdom. Every once in a while, we come through, uh, to, across a story like this in the news. This is from a year ago on August 25th, 2018. 31-year-old Daniel Brandon was killed by an eight-foot pet python named Tiny. 
it's hard not to laugh at this, even though this is, you know, a real situation, but there's a lot of irony in this story. He died from asphyxiation at his home with python he used to call his baby found near the body. This is not an uncommon story. Some people mistake wild animals for pets with disastrous consequences. Have you mistaken a monster for a pet? Have you forgotten the monstrosity of sin? This is what one of the big points of Daniel 7 is so personal. And we have to take it as such. This is how the world is. This is how our hearts are. Monsters within, monsters without, and yet God is on the throne. So let's look at the second part of the vision of chapter 7 where we see the Lord enthroned. One commentator said that this passage, chapter 7 and 8, they're not meant to give us nightmares, but to calm our nightmares. They mean to give us peace. And they do, these passages do that by reminding us of the majestic picture of God's rule over all the kingdoms of the world. And this is verses 9 through 14 in chapter 7. We see the Ancient of Days, God himself, who is wiser than any king and more powerful than any kingdom, sitting on the throne in judgment. This is a court session. The Lord assumes his position of authority, and the books are opened, and the beasts are punished. The beast with the boastful little horn is destroyed and burned with fire. This is what apocalyptic literature does. It assures us of God's reign. No matter how evil the current empires are, or how hostile to the gospel particular oppressors are, God is on the throne. This is the vision that Daniel gets. Yes, there's monsters first, but following the monsters is God on the throne in majesty, in beauty. The throne with wheels, the river flowing, river of fire, tens and tens of thousands of creatures worshiping him, accepting his authority. The Lord sits in judgment over the sinful world and all the monsters are promised to be dealt with. Now sure, some, some monsters are spared. We see it in verse 12. They're spared and are, are allowed to live longer than others. But all must give an account to the ancient of days. Now, I want to take you to chapter 8. This passage is similar. The vision of, of uh, the Daniel has a similar in many ways, but it's also different in a meaningful way. In Daniel's vision in chapter 8, the ram fights with the goat. The goat prevails. The goat's great horn is broken, and then four horns 
come out of its, in its place. Then later a little horn appears that causes all sorts of havoc. Now we can see a lot of the same imagery here, horns. For example, horn is, a, is an image of power in all apocalyptic literature. Whenever you see a horn, it's power. But we also see some interesting features that are different from chapter 7. In chapter 7, Daniel saw fantastical monsters. It's out of someone's crazy imagination. It's a nightmarish vision. But in chapter 8, Daniel saw ordinary domesticated animals. This is significant. Chapter 7, monsters with horns and teeth that are hard to describe. Wings and paws, it's all kind of mixed together. But in chapter 8, it's just a ram and a goat. Familiar categories. Why? Chapter 7 shows us the monstrosity of evil in general. Well, chapter 8 assures us of God's complete control over it. In the second vision, world empires are shown to be nothing but sheep and goats under the power of the divine shepherd. This is an important distinction. Seven is different from eight. Seven gives us the big picture. And so don't get too absorbed in the details. But eight gives us specific visions of specific events, specific empires, specific people. Look at how the angel is interpreting the vision. I mean, it's, it's different. In seven, there's a general interpretation. He doesn't tell Daniel who's who and what's going to happen when. But in eight, he does that. Gabriel, the angel here, beginning in verse 19, tells Daniel that the ram with the two horns is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The Persians are the dominant force in that kingdom. There are two ethnic groups coming together, two empires merging, but the Persians are stronger. They're their bigger horn. They're going to prevail eventually. Now, Daniel gets this vision while Babylon is still in power, but barely. Persians, the Persians and the Medes are, are coming to take the city. And so God tells him the next empire is going to be the Persians and the Medes. Daniel knows who they are. This is very specific to him. The goat, of course, is Greece, the angel tells us. This is the next great superpower which in about two centuries would conquer the vast Persian Empire. That would be the next superpower coming after the Persians. The great horn is easily identified with the first king of Greece, which is Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world at the time. In fact, there was a time when he was sad because he had nothing to conquer anymore. Amazing thing. And then this great, the great horn is broken. Alexander dies in, in, in an early age, and the kingdom is divided among the four generals. That's the four horns, the four parts of the kingdom. And then years later, the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, who's a later king who controlled Palestine, the Holy Land, that came out of one of the four kingdoms, persecuted the Jews, the Jews in a fierce way and desecrated the temple in the mid-2nd century B.C. I think this is very specific. And I think it is remarkable, it is remarkable how specific it is. To name Greece, to name Persia, 
Just like God names Cyrus and Isaiah. I mean, these are very specific predictions. This is not random. And so Daniel is now applying the general vision of chapter 7 to the specifics from chapter 8. God is showing Daniel that he is in control of the people he knows, of the evil he knows, the Persians and the Medes, the Greeks. They're like sheep and goats to him while he remains the shepherd over them all. And even Antiochus Epiphanes, this particularly evil ruler, is just a little horn of a goat under the hand of the shepherd. And God will deal with him too. There's a time frame that's put on him. Amazing. So specific. Now let's go back to chapter 7. How is God enthroned? As a shepherd of chapter 8, as this majestic ancient of days of chapter 7, but there's something else that happens in verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now we see here that the eternal rule is given to one like a son of man. Who is that? And why is he enthroned here? When Jesus Christ was brought before the council, right before he was crucified, he was brought before the council, and they were looking for evidence to condemn him to death. They already knew they wanted to do that. It was, it, it was, a, it was a predetermined conclusion here. But they couldn't get the testimonies to agree. They couldn't get the false witnesses to say the right thing. So they're struggling through it. And finally, and Christ is silent, and finally, the high priest looks to Jesus, and he says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed. And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Hallelujah. This is Mark 14, but Jesus is almost quoting Daniel 7 13 and 14. And the high priest knows exactly what Jesus is saying. Because he's a Bible person. He knows the scriptures. And he knows exactly what Jesus is claiming. What Jesus is saying is that I am the one like son of man in the vision of Daniel to whom God himself will give eternal dominion, will give eternal power. It is I who will be enthroned over all the empires of the world, including your empire. Including, including Rome that is about to put me to death. The high priest recognizes the reference, and this is how he responds. He tears his clothes, and he says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. This seals the verdict. Why? Because Jesus openly claims to be the king of everything that exists under God's authority, given the throne of the kingdom. 
the eternal kingdom, the one that was going to conquer all the kingdoms in Daniel's visions. This is what Jesus is saying. And the priest says, we don't need any more evidence. This is blasphemy. Because anybody who would claim to be this kind of divine and yet human person to whom the throne of the world belongs, unless they are what they claim, is blaspheming against God. But the high priest, the council, Pontius Pilate, and the Roman soldiers did not know that the cross would become Christ's throne. It's on that cross that Jesus faced the monstrosity of sin and evil. On the cross, Jesus defeated the greatest of monsters, the old dragon himself. He crushed the head of the serpent and freed his people from the rule of death. Jesus defanged the beasts of the world on the cross. And when he rose victorious and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was enthroned as the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever. No earthly empire can survive his judgment. No monster can avoid his sword. The Lion of Judah, the slain lamb, will rule forever. Among all the monsters, God is enthroned. And his son, the son of man and the son of God, the Lion of Judah and the slain lamb, will rule forever. Ravi Zacharias likes to quote Malcolm Muggeridge. This is from 1980. This is a great quote to put in perspective how history develops. Malcolm Muggeridge was a journalist who traveled extensively, was firsthand saw various empires of the 20th century rise and fall. Later in life, he became a Christian. And so he started writing and speaking about the politics of the world from a distinctly Christian perspective. This is the quote from 1980, so there's some dated references here, but they are true nonetheless. Muggeridge says, We look back upon history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. In one lifetime, I have seen my own countrymen, he's British, my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song that God, who's made them mighty, would make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian Proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. An Italian clown announced he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. A murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ashoka, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America wealthier, and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than all the rest of the world put together, so that Americans, had they so wished, 
could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one little lifetime, all gone with the wind. England, now part of an island off the coast of Europe, and threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini, dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped to found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps the motorways roaring and the smog settling, with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and of the great victories of the Don Quixotes of the media when they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. And Ravi Zacharias usually adds his own words to Muggeridge's quote. He says, Behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one because of whom, by whom, in whom and through whom alone, mankind may still have peace. The person of Jesus Christ. I present him as the way, the truth, and the life. Have you bent your knee before his throne? When the books are opened, all evil will be brought to light and judged. All monsters will be punished. But those who belong to Christ now will rejoice because their names will be found in the book of life and because the throne of God has become the throne of grace for us. Is this true of you? As you look at the empires of the world, as you look at the monsters of your own heart, do you bend your knee before the throne of Jesus? And finally, and briefly, let's look how the church is encouraged by these visions. One commentator said, apocalyptic literature proclaims a theology of hope to those whom the world has marginalized. It reminds us that God is presently on the throne and that he will ultimately triumph. These visions of Daniel, like the rest of the apocalyptic literature in Scripture, are meant to encourage us today, in the present. Yes, it relates to the future. Of course it does. And we need to look at that, and we need to see what God is about to do. Yes, God is predicting and prophesying. But it is also meant to encourage us right now, in the present. In the Indian widowed households, in the North Korean labor camps, in the bombed-out churches of Nigeria. These visions are encouraging God's people today. Look at Daniel 7, 17 and 18. I think this is sort of the summary of, of chapter 7 here. The angel interprets the first vision, and he says, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But, but, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Hallelujah. 
when faced with the monsters of the world, remember, they are just sheep and goats to our God. They're just dogs and cats to Him. When a particular, particularly evil government or dictator opposes and persecutes the church, remember, He's just a little horn on a goat's head to be judged by the ancient of days. When you see a little horn boasting and defying God, when you see monsters rising out of the sea, remember the throne. Remember the vision of the throne given to our Lord Jesus. Long after the empires fall and fade from our memory, we will reign with Christ forever. That is encouraging to us today, today as we're fighting monsters. We remember the throne. It's hard in the moment to recognize how temporal, how fragile the empires of the world are. How about to topple they are. Now, some of us have lived, not like Muggeridge through the 20th century, but some of us have lived through these cataclysmic events. I have. I remember as a child, distinctly remember, thinking, this is never going to change. Growing up in the Soviet Ukraine, thinking, this is never going to change. How could these, these colossal structures be toppled? I remember, you know, the architecture, Soviet architecture is big and square and strong. This is on purpose to show you that this empire will never fall. And yet I also remember as a young teenager, early teenage years, I remember being a small town in western Ukraine. I think I've shared that here before. And the statue of Lenin being pulled down by an angry mob with a crane and a noose. <laughs> I, I was there. I remember seeing them. They dragged him through the streets of their town. And in a matter of months, Everything that seemed so strong was toppled, it was gone, and it was becoming a memory. Empires rise and they fall. Even our own sin is temporal, is fragile under the grace of our Lord. I'll tell you really quickly another story. I remember there was one old pastor in Ukraine who went through the, it was a Baptist pastor who went through the persecution of the Soviet times, was in prison several times, and was a hardened, kind of a hardened leader in the church. After the Soviet Union fell, uh, there was an IRS agent that came and, and tried to, uh, to get a bribe from the church, which wasn't uncommon at all. And so this hardened old pastor made an appointment with this IRS official, went to his office, looked him in the eye and said, you know that we stood up to the KGB. You know that. And you know that they're gone and we're still here. <laughs> Do you really want to start this fight with me? <laughs> the story goes they didn't. There is a sense in the visions of Daniel, in the visions of Revelation, that we can stand strong no matter what the opposition is, no matter how strong the empire of our day seems, because these are just monsters that will be finally slayed by our Lord Jesus. Amen. I'll finish with this quote from John Chrysostom. 
John Chrysostom was a famous pastor in 4th, 5th century Byzantium. Chrysostom means golden mouthed. He was a famous preacher. In fact, he was preaching in Antioch, which is a relatively small town compared to Byzantium, the capital. And so people from the capital decided to kidnap him and make him the bishop of Constantinople. And so he did. they did that, and he agreed. And so he was preaching there in the imperial court. This is the imperial city, right? The, the queen, the empress, and the emperor are in his congregation. Imagine that. That didn't deter him from preaching the gospel. And so he would often preach against the luxury, against, against the, um, the wastefulness of the court, against their oppression of the poor. He was exiled several times. And on one of those occasions, as the emperor called him to his palace, and he said, I will exile you again if you don't stop preaching against me and my empress. And Chrysostom said, you can't exile me. The whole world is my father's house. <laughs> the emperor says, then I will kill you. Chrysostom says, you can't, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I will take away your treasures. You can't, for my treasure is in heaven. Then I will drive you away from men, and you will have no friends left. You can't, for I have a friend in heaven from whom I cannot be separated. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. I think the Baptist pastor that I mentioned earlier and John Chrysostom are cut from the same cloth. They have seen the visions of monsters slayed by the Lord Jesus. These are valuable pages of Scripture. Don't ignore them, but also don't miss the point that Daniel and Revelation and those books are making. And the point is that sin is monstrous, but God is enthroned, and that is a great encouragement to us, whatever monsters you are fighting this morning.